welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Uh, Ezra chapter 3 is where we are. That's uh, a portion of this text I just read to you. Uh, So Ezra chapter 3, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn there. Over seven decades ago in 1949, God stirred the hearts of some folks from First Baptist Church in Kenner to start a new work for the Lord in a part of the city that they believed needed a solid gospel witness. At first, this mission work was called Midway Baptist Mission because it was on a strip of land that was midway between Kenner and New Orleans. Exactly 70 years ago this week, on January 17, 1954, this Midway Mission officially became Riverside Baptist Church. And so for 70 years now, folks have been gathering on this piece of property, calling themselves most commonly today as Riverside Church. And so over the last seven decades, a lot of ministry has happened on this plot of land, and a lot of ministry has been launched from this plot of land. Everything from a full school, food pantries, VBS, passion plays, missionaries, Katrina relief, tutoring, and countless other types of ministry have happened right here on this campus, right here on this plot of land over the past 70 years. What's more, well over 3,600 times people have gathered right here on Sunday mornings and countless other times on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, revival meetings, and more in this very place. And so why do we gather here? Why do we continue to gather here? What has sustained us over the last 70 years? Do we gather because we share common traits? Do we gather in order to do ministries? Why? Why do we exist? Why do churches exist? Why do you exist? Why did those folks from another church across town decide to start a work here that is still going to this day? We gather for one reason. We gather to worship We gather for the sake of worship, to worship with our lives. And yes, ministries come and go and ministries flow out of worship. But but we gather in this place and we gather as God's people for worship. Because ministries come and go, but worship is forever. The folks of First Kenner helped plant this church midway between Kenner and New Orleans because they wanted worship to happen in this part of the city, for there to be a gospel witness, for there to be a lighthouse, for there to be a gathering of worshipers so that this city might know our God. We say all of this because we gather for the same reason the people gathered on that plot of land in Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 3. The first thing I want you to notice in our passage this morning is that the people, this is the big picture, are gathering to worship. And that's, in fact, what we, we sang this a second ago, that Christ is our cornerstone. Christ is the true temple. The foundation has been, been laid. And, and we, as his people, to kind of give you some New Testament context to this, is the Bible calls us as believers, as regenerate baptized believers, that we are stones being built together into the household of God, the true spiritual temple. And so we gather in this place to worship because 
God's people are scattered all across the globe in, in gatherings like this as we get glimpses and foretaste of heaven as the true spiritual temple is being built, as God's presence dwells among us. One day this world will be all filled with his glory. But for now we have these, these outposts that we see this glory. And so the people in Jerusalem gather for one reason. They're gathering to worship. Now, now at first, this may not seem like much. After all, Cyrus, when he gave the decree for them to go back, was so that they might build the house of God, that they might worship their God. But let's stop and think about this for a minute. They haven't been home in some 70 years. And the temple now lies in ruin. Because remember, Babylon, they, they destroyed the place. They ransacked the place. They choked them out of their temple, their homes, their livelihoods, their non-existence. There's work to do. There's work to do in Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. Think of the times that you've evacuated for a storm. In some of the bigger storms, you may be gone a week or two depending on power outages and what happens. I know some of you have full home generators now, so that makes a difference. But do you remember returning home perhaps after Katrina? What was on your mind? Do I have a job? Is my home okay? Do I have a place to live? Do I need to clean up my place, make repairs, etc.? Do you remember what your house looked like? I, I was living in Jackson, Mississippi at the time, so I didn't quite experience this. But I remember going over the 17th Street Canal and seeing the devastation of Lakeview and, and the devastation of the Ninth Ward as going over the Industrial Canal there. Do you remember that? I need to clean up my place. I need to make repairs. repairs and how long did it take for it to get back to, to normal? Maybe you're thinking it's still waiting to get back to normal. I don't know if we'll ever get back to normal, but, but imagine, gone for a couple weeks, one storm, imagine an army ransacking the place and 70 years have passed. Can you imagine the work that needed to be done? There is work that certainly needs to be done. There's homes to establish, crops to plant, weeds to remove, enemies to be on guard against. There is so much to do. But they gather to worship. They gather, here's the definition of worship, is to ascribe the highest worth to something or someone. More important than getting their homes back together, more important than getting their crops back together, more important than the works that they had to do, those all good things that they had to do, their greatest source of significance was not their jobs, was not their livelihood. Their greatest source of security was not that, but was found in worship and stopping and gathering. Do you see what it says here? That they gathered to Jerusalem. Do you see it in verse 1 of chapter 3? As one man. Together. That was crucial to them. That was vital to them. With all the work that needed to be done, what they valued most was worship, corporate worship. Together, yes, we will help work. We will help build. But ultimately, we will help each other worship. And brothers and sisters, this is so important in an age of individualism, in an age where you can stay home, download music and sermons far better than anything you hear here, we are to gather together as one man, as one unit, to help one another worship in person and also to get a foretaste of heaven. 
These are people you would be gathered around the throne for all of eternity with. And so we get a foretaste of that, and that mattered so much to them because worship was ultimate. And this is where God said he would meet his people at the temple in Jerusalem, so there they went. And even today in every community, places like Riverside that was once Midway Mission, people still gather for worship to exalt his name and make his presence known among the people of River Ridge and the people of the world. We are worshipers first and foremost. Before we are workers, before we are even husbands and wives or kids, whatever it might be, we are worshipers first and foremost. This is why you were created. This is why you were redeemed. This is why Moses says, let my people go out of Egypt so that we might worship our God. You are redeemed. You are brought out of exile to God so that you might worship. Everything that we do, the ultimate purpose is worship. Every person we share the gospel with, every mission or ministry that we do, the ultimate goal is worship, that more people might be worshipers. Not to build Riverside, not to build a brand, but worshipers. This is so easy to drift from. It's easy to drift from in established churches because there's so many ministries that end up popping up over time that we try to keep going We can get into maintenance mode and forget our mission is to make Christ known that more people might be gathered as worshipers. It mattered for them. It mattered for us that we are worshipers. So with all that in mind, here's what I want you to see, some three things that I want you to see from this text. We're going to see them do several things, but I want to point out and bring attention to three. These worshipers who are gathered as one man corporately in Jerusalem. One, one people in Jerusalem. They build an altar. They celebrate a feast, particularly we'll see the Feast of Tabernacles, and they lay the foundation of the temple. And what we see them do, I think, will help us understand worship. It'll help us avoid drift and, and perhaps rekindle the fire of worship in our hearts. Help us to understand what our mission is as a church and a mission as individuals because we are the church. And so if we are to be worshipers, then you individually must be worshipers. You get this, right? And so we want to see that this morning. The first thing that they did as worshipers, worshipers, they gathered as one in Jerusalem. They built the altar. Look at verses 2 and 3. They arose, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his fellow priest, Arubabal, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, the altar of burnt offerings that is mentioned here was one of the most highly visible features in the courtyard of the portable tabernacle, and then after that, the temple in Jerusalem. It was situated between the entrance to the courtyard and the doorway that led to the holy place of the sanctuary. No one could come into God's presence without first encountering this sizable altar. Its central location is significant. It reminded the Israelite worshipers that access to God depended upon sacrifices being presented on it. 
These sacrifices were vital, ensuring that sinful, defiled people could approach a holy God in safety. And so this is reminding them of their sin, of their, their need for blood to be shed, sacrifice to be given for them to stand in the presence of Almighty God. So the very first thing they do as worshipers is they built this, offer, this, off, this uh, altar. The altar for burnt offerings, they're, they're expressing this need of repentance, this need to offer themselves completely. Because in the burnt offerings, there was nothing left. Everything was burnt up in the burnt offerings. And so as worshipers, they built an altar, the altar of burnt offerings. And so I wanted to tell you this this morning, to be a worshiper, to live as you were designed to live, as they built it, offer yourselves completely and wholly to the Lord. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that you are a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to the Lord. This is presenting yourself to the Lord, saying, God, I, God I'm holding nothing back. Everything that I am, all that I am, everything that I, God, I'm, I'm leaving nothing on the table. Putting ev- nothing behind, I'm putting everything on the table. It's all yours. Worship begins when you offer yourselves to the Lord completely. Daily, this is the rhythm of your lives. You roll out of the bed onto the altar and say, God, use me up. All for your glory. Just as the only way that we can come into the presence of the Lord is through this burnt offering being totally and completely consumed. Lord, total and completely consume me for your glory. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Lord, here I am. Use me. Use all of me. And use me completely. I want you to notice something else. What the Lord records for us and. Chapter, I mean, verse 3. They set this altar in place, symbolic of making the way to the Lord, this burnt offering as the New Testament ties to us, offering our lives wholly and completely to the Lord. Listen to what it says here. For fear was on them because of the people of the land. I find that very curious. Fear, why were they fearing? Is the people of the land... Maybe they're fearing because they're coming back to a land completely occupied by others. It's not their people that are there. Maybe they're fearful because they're worshiping in a way that was countercultural to those who were currently in the land. Do you ever fear that if you offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable to the Lord, that, that, that you might face some opposition, that it might cost you something? It's very likely that they were fearful for all of those reasons, and because of that fear, they worshipped. That worship was going to actually silence their fears. Worship was the way that they dealt with their fears. They worshipped knowing that they were gods and God was theirs. For when you are fearful, when fear is upon you, offer yourself to God. The harder life becomes, we need to know whose we are and who holds us. And so with the people of the land pressing around, as fears arose, these people know where they will find their refuge. These folks know where they will find their safety. 
And safety is not available from the idols that people worship. Whatever was being worshipped in that place in that day, we know what's being worshipped in our culture. Safety will not be found in money, sex, power, none of those things. Safety is not found in them, but in found in worshipping the one true God and living according to his design. Period. Reliance upon man had got them where they were, and now fear surrounded them. So they know what to do. Let's get our eyes on Christ. Let's get our eyes on God. And let's worship. Worship, they built an altar, offering themselves completely to you. Are are we going to be a worshiping church? Are you going to be a worshiping person? Offer yourself completely and wholly to the Lord and hold nothing back. Do you fear doing that? Do you fear what it might cost you and the ramifications it might have, maybe with your friends or work or whatever it might be? Do you, do you fear that some sacrifices might have to be made? It might cost you in, in, in some areas of the life that worship. Offer yourselves completely and wholly to him. Do you think you can trust him? He who did not spare his own son for you, will he not give you everything that you need? Absolutely he will. Offer yourself to him. The second thing they did, not only did they build this altar, but they celebrated. They celebrated a feast. Look at verse 4. This particular feast. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings and the offerings at the new moon and, all that, and, all, and at all the appointed feast of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. So they're offering these burnt offerings, and they're also celebrating, particularly the feast I want to point out is the Feast of Booths. Now, now why feast? Now, these festivals are, are powerful uh, worldview builders for ancient Israel. These festivals were memorials. They celebrated what they believed and and how that truth was anchored in specific ways that God had acted throughout history. It's it's very similar to as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We we celebrate the truth that Christ has died for us. He's given his life for us and, and we are found and we are in the new covenant because of the blood of the new covenant. And so we celebrate that physically and tangibly. And so this truth, is anchored in the celebration that is anchored in that historical night when Jesus celebrated the, for the Last Supper with his disciples. So it was for them with their festivals. It celebrated these times, these specific times in history that God acted on behalf of his people as he acted according to his character. And we have those today. The two ways we celebrate those things are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Lord willing, in a few weeks here, you're going to see a baptism. And so they know that God is the redeemer. God is a provider. And that he actually provided for them in history, particularly in the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of Booths, where they are celebrating and rejoicing in what God has done for them and did for them in the wilderness the way he provided for them in the wilderness. The, the way that when he had, they had nothing and, and he promised that he would bring them to the promised land, wouldn't you know it that their provider, that their redeemer brought them all the way to the promised land and provided everything they needed along the way. And so this feast reminded them of God's provision, 
of bringing them through the wilderness and now bringing them back from exile. And, and know something about this feast. It was a time of tr- tremendous joy. I, I, I picture it as like this, this melding together of like Christmas morning and a campout. Like kids would be jacked up about the festival of booths. And so few feasts were as joyful as the Feast of Booths. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacle. It would be one of the fall festivals. They would create these booths where they would uh, live out in the wilderness uh, for a a week long, celebrating what God had done for them. It was at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and olives were harvested in Israel. It was a time to thank God for the last year's provision and pray for his provision in the time to come. It was one of the highlights of the year. It was where joy could be felt and seen and experienced all across the land for seven full days. So think about it. The temple's foundation has not been laid yet. There's a lot of work to do, so much to be done, and they stop and celebrate. Now, now I think for our minds, there's something wrong with that. Like, like this is the time, like, Kentucky's head coach gets the, the Gatorade bottle, the Gatorade jug poured on him right before that great miracle back in the early 2000s where LSU throws the, the Hail Mary. I think it was at the Devery Henderson or something like that. Uh, the Kentucky miracle. Do you remember this? The last second play where LSU wins. Nobody remembers that. I, a couple of you remember that. Uh, do, do you remember the, in 1982 with Cal and Stanford, the, the last play of the game, the, the band starts marching on the field and, and Cal ends up winning the game, do you, or Stanford, one or the other? It's a premature celebration. This feels a little bit like a premature celebration. Like they're pouring the Gatorade on the coach before the final whistle blows. There's still the temple to build and they're stopping to celebrate. What gives there? There's no time to celebrate. There's work to do. We'll have the party when this is done. Wouldn't you think when the whistle blows, when the temple is built, when the glory of God comes down, then we will celebrate. I think we get a truth here from them celebrating this feast of booths even before the temple, even while there's still work to be done. The only way to be sustained in the work is to rejoice from the start and rejoice in the victories along the way. And rejoice in who God is along the way. Because the truth is, if you lose your joy, you'll find that you'll lose your strength. For the joy of the Lord is our strength. I think we miss that a lot. I don't know if it's a Western thing or, whatever, or just a, a human thing. That we forget to rejoice. And the truth is, the, the busier we are, it's not that we don't have time to rejoice because we're so busy. You ever feel like that? We don't have time to rejoice. That's stuff to do, man. The truth is, the busier we are, the greater the task ahead, the more overwhelmed you are, the more rejoicing we need. And the temptation would be to celebrate all that we have done, but we're celebrating what Christ has done. And so maybe joy is hard to grab right now. But what we're celebrating is that God saves his people 
in this Feast of Booths and as we as Christians, God saves his people and we are his people. That all of this is true on our worst day as much as it is on our best day. That his banner over us is love. And he has brought us to his banqueting table. That I'm loved. I'm chosen. I'm forgiven. I'm redeemed. I'm provided for. I'm adopted. I'm his. Even when the foundation of the temple has not yet been laid, all of that is true. Even when you don't see a way out, even when you're overwhelmed, it is true. His banner over us, his love. He acted in the wilderness and he will act again. Let's stop and celebrate what God has done. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So give yourself completely to him. So so notice this before I leave, rejoice. I understand circumstances may be overwhelming you, but this joy is rejoicing in who God is and what he has done, and that is unchanging. Give yourself completely to him as a worshiper. Number two, rejoice in the Lord always. Number three, and finally, be certain of his presence. Because sometimes you're just wondering, where is the presence of the Lord? Maybe in a corporate gathering, maybe individually, maybe you're just not feeling it. Be assured of his presence. Verse 6. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons. So they collect their resources and food and drink and oil and all of these things to get cedar trees and everything they need to build the temple. They set priests and Levites over to supervise this building of the temple. And the Bible tells us when we get to verse 10 of chapter 3 that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, after celebrating, after worshiping, after all of these things, now they're building the temple. The priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to the praise of the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. They long so greatly for the presence of the Lord. Do you remember in Solomon's temple, they they, they could physically see the presence of the Lord as it came down in a cloud and filled the temple. And now they're building this new temple and they're longing for that day, as Isaiah said, that God's going to rend the heavens and he's going to come down and dwell among his people again. They long so greatly for his presence and God promised the presence of the Lord in this temple. And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant is not there where the presence of the Lord was physically manifest there. And so, like, how's God going to work all this out? And they give sacrificially. And they rejoice. The temple has been laid for he is good as love endures forever. It's building a crescendo. They're, they're, they're waiting for the Lord to maybe send his glory down that it's going to be like days of old. And the people shouted with a great shout. You can kind of feel the crescendo building. And they praise the Lord. The foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the priests and Levites and Levites and heads of the father's house, old men, they'd seen the first house. They knew what it was like 70 years ago, and it sure wasn't like today. So they wept, 
This young generation is rejoicing in what God is doing. They remember former glory and, and they weep. Can you imagine how discouraging that is for the younger generation? When they see the people that saw it 70 years ago, like, this ain't it. We know what former glory was like. Can you imagine how gut-wrenching that might be for them? Can you imagine today how gut-wrenching it might be for a former generation to say, this is not what a church was like back then. They wept with a loud voice, and they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away. They're wondering, where is the glory? Where is the presence? God promised to send his presence down. Where is it? In the middle of this, Haggai gives an encouragement. The same encouragement for us today. They're wondering where the former glory is. Can we be assured of his presence among us? Haggai, the prophet, steps into this as they're weeping and mourning, and where is the presence of the Lord? Is God even with us? Here's what Haggai says, Haggai 2, 3 through 5. It says, Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing to you? Well, yeah. There's no ark, big empty room in the temple, <laughs> where the presence of the Lord used to be. At this point, it's just the foundation. They're, they're not seeing it. It says, but now be strong. And maybe you're, not, maybe you're just thinking that like, like personally right now, right? Like I remember former glory. Is it supposed to be like this? You're the word of the Lord. But now be strong, declares the Lord. Be strong, be strong, he says three times, all you people of the land, and keep on working. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. He has not left them or forsake them. Yes, it doesn't look like former glory, but, but I am still with you. So be strong and fear not. He's promised his presence, and his presence will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong. Be a true worshiper. Offer yourself completely and totally to him. Be a true worshiper. Rejoice even when there is work to do. Don't forget to rejoice and the joy of the Lord be your strength. Be a true worshiper. Know that the presence of God is promised to you and the presence of God is with you. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Not in your own might, but in his strength for he is with you. So we learn a lot, I think, from Ezra chapter 3. It helps us to evaluate even ministries of the church. Are we seeking to, for people to be worshipers? Are we a worshiping community? You individual, are, are you offering yourselves completely and totally to him? What are, what are you holding on to? What do you refuse to lay down and be consumed and burnt up for the sake of the kingdom? What, what are you holding back? Uh, 
Have you forgotten to rejoice? Do you know that you can rejoice even in the darkest days? Because our joy is found in, in what he has done for us and who he is. Are you rejoicing? And are you trusting in his presence even in days where it doesn't look like there is much? Do you trust his presence is promised to you and among you even now? Will we be a worshiping church? Will you be a worshiping people? Let's pray that God would make that so in our hearts. Father.